Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. We have a little bit different format for today's episode. Uh, it's just me, George, and Alan, and we wanted to explore a topic that pretty interesting, I think, to the three of us. It's interesting to me in that I guess I would sort of call myself an environmentalist, and not that George and Alan definitely, you know, they are as well. But before listening to some of their insights over the course of these podcasts, I've learned a lot about really what is the reality of, of turning carbon neutral by 2050 and the, the Paris Agreement and things like that, that of course everyone is, is very much in favor of. Um, but there's a, there's a cost. And, uh, and when it comes to having reliable power, uh, we really need to look at what is the cost of moving from fossil fuels to alternative energy sources? And I really appreciate Alan and George's insights on, on these topics. So I think it's a, it's a really great opportunity to get their perspective, especially with all that's going on in the world and our reliance on fossil fuels and, and this goal of turning everything carbon neutral by the year 2050. And let's dive in and talk about what does that mean and, and what's the reality of all that? So good morning, Alan. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your day. I, I know you've got family in town and, and George has been traveling all week. So so thanks guys for taking time out to talk about this. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood here. And uh like to wish everybody a happy uh, Easter season. You mentioned, David, uh, that we're all environmentalists. This is certainly true. I'm an environmentalist. I know George is. Uh, but, you know, it depends what you mean by an environmentalist. Uh, because besides being an environmentalist, I'm a realist. And people think they're two different sides of the coin. They're not really. I classify myself as a, somebody that believes the science. Uh, now, on the other side of the coin, between a environmentalists and realists, uh, to the far, far right reaches of the left, you have what I call fanatics. And it's fanatics that are driving a lot of this uh, move away from fossil fuels to alternative energy. And they don't understand the science. It's almost a religion with them. And a lot of people have drank the Kool-Aid. You know, we've experienced in the past what uh, certain uh, beliefs uh, they're not realistic, uh, of led people. And it's ironic that the same people that keep saying, uh, believe the science when it comes to the COVID outbreak tend to ignore the science when it comes to electrification. Electrification is the term that's being used for the move away from fossil fuels to the supply of electricity uh, via other means. Good example of this is electric vehicles move away from gas powered electric vehicles, gas powered vehicles to electric vehicles. Even uh, closer to the home, they're 
replacement of oil burners, oil heaters, to uh, uh, various other forms, you know, solar, obviously, at the home, and, uh, you know, heat pumps rather than uh, what I've got is an electric boiler, which is powered from the local utility company, which is powered from coal plant in West Virginia somewhere. So that's where I'm coming from. And I'll let George uh, go in here, and then I'll come back and uh, I'll tell you about the science some of the facts and that seem to just agree with each other. And uh, we'll take it from there. We'll uh, try, I'll try not to go off on tangents, but uh, David, you'll probably do a good job in keeping us on course here. So good morning, George. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm also a realist in that sense. I suppose I have to be because I've spent most of my life involved in, in projects. And any project uh, you get involved in, if anybody else has been involved in large projects, realism becomes the factor. No matter what the original concept was, you may well have to change it based on the conditions you're operating under. So realism becomes a very important part of being project manager. And I think that's what the problem we have today with it is. is as Alan said, we have the extremes at both sides. And it, it's, it's not just within this, it's within everything we're doing at the present moment within the country. We've got to get away from that and start talking about the middle. And I know that that upsets most people, but that in the end is where realism comes into it. We have to find the ways to use the, basically the, the facilities, the, the well, facilities in part, because there's a lot of invested money invested in various facilities, but we have to look at it from a point of how can we best use those facilities, the resources we have. I think the, everything that's going on is going on at the present moment uh, brings a, a, a level of realism to some of this and say, okay, we are, you know, at the present moment, we are becoming too dependent on everything else that's going on in the world. It doesn't matter how well we plan, we, we are not going to succeed. So some of that comes into about, you know, as they said that, there are some people probably very happy about the war in Ukraine because it's going to stop the supply of coal to lots of places in Europe. But if we've got that sort of thinking, that sort of thinking will never get us back to a realistic solution to the problem. Does that put me in place then, Alan? Yeah, the, the thing is that, um, as you say, we, we've got to look at it from a try to centrist point of view, but I was just thinking there as you were talking about the war in Ukraine, George. If we'd have been doing this podcast two years ago, I think we'd be coming from a completely different point of view. If we'd been, been doing it 10 years ago, it would have been completely different. But um, I'd like to basically start with a couple of figures here uh, that I, I researched. And this is basically concentrating on coal plants to begin with, because that's something that's very close to what, where we live, George. You know, we're surrounded by Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Virginia. And uh, there are loads and loads of coal-burning plants in those uh, areas. And a lot of people uh, depend upon coal mining and uh, coal-fired uh, generation plants. But uh, I saw a statistic the other day, which kind of caught my interest, and uh, is the fact that you know, everybody's saying coal plants are bad, they're pollutants, and everything else. So I, I saw a couple of things, and I'd like to lead off with those, and then we can 
maybe talk about uh, the alternative energy side of things. One that caught me was that I'm talking about the U.S. here, United States. There's uh, 289 coal plants have closed since 2010, which is 40% of our coal generation's capacity. That's quite significant. And according to the uh, Energy Information Administration, there was 580 coal plants in 2011, and that was down 633 plants since 2002. So you can see that there's a coal plants closing everywhere, some for good reason. You know, the life of a coal plant is about 45 years, but a lot of them have been modernized. Uh, the, certain things have been put in place uh, to lower the emissions. But most of the coal plants built in the last 30 years are completely different when it comes to pollutants. Without boring everybody, I'll, I'll try and go into some of those pollutants, but I'd, I'd like to read an executive summary from the Institute of Energy Research or I'll just paraphrase it, basically. And it says, America's improving air quality is an untold success story. Even before Congress passed Clean Air Act amendments of 1970, air quality has been improving for decades. And since 1970, the so-called criteria pollutants have declined significantly. And they're talking about the pollutants from coal plants. And to give an example, fact is that one of the pollutants uh, is uh, sulfur dioxide. They've been reduced by 85%. Another pollutant is uh, uh, nitrogen oxide. And that's been uh, reduced by 84%. And those reductions, uh, some, some more here that uh, are even more that says that particulate matter has been reduced by 99.8%. These have come about because the way that they're treating the coal before it's burnt because they, the scrubbers they're using, the, some of the other things that are put in place uh, to reduce emissions. So the pollutants created by coal plants have reduced drastically, uh, but you don't really hear about this. One graph I looked at, it shows that fact that uh, talking about uh, growth uh, when I say growth, I mean growth in population, uh, growth in uh, vehicle miles traveled, growth in uh, gross domestic, domestic product, and gross energy consumption. Between 1970 and 2016, gross domestic product has increased by 253%. Vehicle emissions or vehicle travel has increased by 190%. The population has increased by 58%. Our energy consumption has increased by 44%, which I think is great. We, you know, we seem to be kind of reducing the amount of energy consumed per head of population. Well, the starting fact is that uh, the aggregate emissions from coal plants has gone down. It's the only thing that hasn't increased. It's gone down by 73%. So there are just some facts and figures to, to set the, be realistic about things. And uh, maybe I'll let, let George comment on that or add to it, and then I'll look at uh, some other facts and figures. Okay, thank you, Alan. I'll bring one here, and this is very close to home, because I actually did a, a training course at a coal plant a few years ago, actually up in Wisconsin, and it was uh, it was interesting because the plant had been there for a long time, 
it had it was on if I can remember right it was on generator I think there was four there were originally the there'd be four generators in there two of them already retired I think the third one was about to be retired and the fourth one was going to be taken offline and uh, basically restored or put back into full working order it was a working order but it needed to be uh, basically brought up to spec and it, after that, that was supposed to be done this year. And then after that, it was going to be at another 40 years of life in it. Okay. And that was, and the reason they were going to do that, keep that one, is because that particular generator output, the, the boilers and that for that one, uh, were fully converted to scrubbing, as you said, Alan. And the, uh, the level of pollutant coming out of that particular uh, unit was practically zero. Uh, and they had a they had a place for almost everything they went to, including the final bit of ash, which went to a local manufacturer of breeze block or you know concrete blocks. So as a filler, so th- this is you know th- this was a to me the ultimate in recycling type of application. But I since heard that in fact they're not going to renovate the plant. In fact, they are going to build a huge solar panel, a solar field, instead in order to meet their electrification needs. Well, think about it. You're taking away a piece of hardware that had another 40 years of life left in it to generate. It already had all the equipment in place to reduce the pollutants to practically zero. What a waste of the taxpayer's money who's going to pay for this electricity. The other thing that frightens me about all of this total anti-coal is Coal is the one source of power that we have. I believe it's something like 250 years worth of requirements under the ground that we know of, that we would be, instead of investing the money on improving that level of, achieving that level of cleanliness, that we're going off on a tangent for something that, as you said, Alan, we, we talked about this a few years ago, We've made the point about everything is changing, including the weather patterns. Are those weather patterns that we are going to start seeing now, are they viable in the future for renewable energy? No. As David said earlier, I spent this week traveling. I was down in Kansas. And um, my return flight from Kansas via Atlanta to Atlanta was, um, it took us another 35 minutes longer because of that batch of storms going through. Instead of flying direct, we had to go up almost to Chicago and then come back down again to avoid the storms. And, you know, he said he was avoiding the storms. I'll tell you what, we bounced around the sky for the whole of that trip. You know, so, and also, I, I've, you know, I haven't been in Kansas that often, but I'll tell you what, I've never seen regular wind like we had there. Just walking from the hotel to the car, you felt as if you're going to be blown away sometimes. And the guy said, "Oh well, that's that's getting quite normal here. So, how, what kind of state are our wind generators going to handle when if they're going to get, you know, higher levels of wind because you've got to take them out of service when it gets to a certain level?" George, so, you, you hit on some very, very interesting and important points. You, you mentioned about our reserves of coal. Uh, I read a f- f- fact somewhere or other that we have more coal reserves 
in place in the United States to keep us going for, I think you mentioned 250 years. But the fact is that for energy-wise, in other words, the energy that can be produced from that coal is more than all of the energy that can be supplied from oil from Saudi Arabia. And you also hit on the fact that changing weather patterns. We'll talk about when we go on to uh, alternative energy, but uh, more and more cases we're getting where the, the sun don't shine or the wind don't blow. And that never seemed to be taken into the calculation. But uh, the, before we leave uh, the coal plants, fossil fuel generation, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about oil, which is another no-no as far as the uh, far left environmentalists are concerned. But, uh, you know, shutting down oil pipelines and other things is, uh, lessons have been learned in Europe. Last year, in the last year, calendar year, gas prices in Europe have increased by 200%. Now, that's nothing to do with political politics. Well, it has to do with politics, but uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the political situation in, in Europe. It doesn't have anything to do with Russia, Ukraine other than the fact that they're relying heavily on uh, Russian gas, natural gas. But uh, the European Union, their natural gas, oil and coal imports, Germany is kind of the poster child of this typical example. The natural gas, oil and coal imports amounted to 50, 70, 60% of the gross energy consumption. Uh, Now, a lot of this has been cut off. They have. you know, significantly ramped up uh, other sources, uh, one of these other sources being coal, but uh, they're not going to make up the shortfall. We're kind of heading in the same direction here. So, uh, you know, politics is playing a, a large part in uh, uh, this, uh, some of the, I call it pie in the sky, transition, uh, electrification transition. But uh, David mentioned earlier on about the uh, carbon free by, uh, 2050. Uh, I saw a thing within the last week that mentioned carbon free by 2035. And uh, maybe it's a good transition point here, uh, having put up my unrest, I'll arrest my defense for the coal plants. But uh, how we're uh, going to transition, how we're going to make other shortfall, George, how we're going to, uh, what's realistic, what's not. You hit on a great point about the wind turbines being shut down. I, too, have driven across Kansas, led to the state several times on my way back and forward to Denver. But you, know, you dri- drive through these off Interstate 70, these huge wind farms, and the turbines are not turning. Either there's no wind or there's too much wind. So uh, maybe we can uh, start transitioning over to the alternatives, George, and uh, see what's realistic and see what's not there. Well, I'm not sure, but we could. I think we should talk a little bit more about the oil and gas part of it as well, because that's that's also a major part that they want to cut down. Now, I will be honest: uh, if uh, if we could get rid of the uh, gas fuel cars, I'd be quite happy with that, because um, having driven an electric car and enjoying my uh, speed and acceleration from my past. I would have an electric car any time from that respect, but you've got to get the prices down for it. So, yeah, that, but, but, but you're right. We have to, if we're going to have electric vehicles of any kind, uh, then we have to get a way of producing that electricity. And it's not going to be produced 
by purely uh, non-carbon related powers, unless we are going to go totally nuclear. Now, we've, we've talked about that in previous uh, podcasts, and uh, so we won't go there too much at the present moment, other than just to make a point that there is an election going on in France at the present moment, and uh, the big push there in France is about they want to increase the number of nuclear plants they have. In fact, the uh, one of the one of the, the two contenders for the position of prime minister, she's actually claiming at the moment that she would scrap every wind wind turbine because the she doesn't like them and go and build nuclear plants. And the only problem is that you can't build a nuclear plant as fast as you could scrap a wind turbine. So she's going to have a little problem there. But they're definitely France is definitely going to push the nuclear side because they've had it for. They've always been much stronger on the nuclear than MDLs in Europe, and they've never had a problem with it. So, you know, we still need to have fossil fuels at some point. And again, if we do the just clean up the resulting exhausts from the use of it, we can have a relatively clean and relatively secure method of uh, powering it. The one thing that probably has annoyed me more in the, in the last few months is this thing we keep hearing about, well, we can't bring the price of gas down because it's internationally set. No, you know, if we're going to be, if we're going to look after ourselves, let's stop the oil companies exporting any of our oil and gas, and let's not import anything other than from perhaps Canada. And um, we're self-sufficient, and then we can don't need to go by the, the world's sense of what the price of gas should be, and we can get gouged by other people. Uh, George, uh, you also touched on something uh, which I meant to talk about was uh, economics. You know, the cost of converting a traditional coal-burning plant to uh, a clean coal-burning plant is significant. Uh, But the other thing is that uh, they're closing down all these coal plants all over the place. But there's none being built. That none of the new plants are being built. The simple reason that uh, you know investors don't want to uh, put money into something that the government or somebody else is going to turn around in a few years and say, no, you can't do that. Plus the fact that it takes ten to twelve years to build a a new coal plant from scratch, and believe you me, they would have to jump through environmental requirements uh, you would not believe. So we're between a, a rock and a hard place. But uh, I also read something of interest, the fact that uh, among these uh, two, you know, among the closures of the coal plants was that the last two coal plants in New Jersey uh, were going to be closing next month. The last, that's the last two coal generation plants in New Jersey. This was a press release issued on March 24th, less than a month ago. The very next week, uh, Dateline, uh, March twenty third, uh, March thirty first, had an article about the, the largest uh, combined cycle gas plant or generating plant in Southeast Asia was now fully operational, and the, the power from that plant far outweighed the uh, any of the outputs from those two plants in New Jersey. But not only that. If I can remember the statistic, I made a note of it, but I can't really find it at the moment, but uh, I can wing it, and it says that uh, something about 
Here we are in the United States closing down all these coal plants. Half of Europe is closing down their coal plants. China is uh, building coal plants like you would not believe. Uh, in actual fact, uh, one of the huge coal plants that they're building is uh, far outweighs, I think, anything we've ever got in the United States. So here's one half of the world, uh, shall we say, Europe and the uh, United States, uh, going in one direction. But uh, the other half of the world, mainly Asia, is building coal plants that you would not believe. Huge one being built in Malaysia at the moment. So it's almost as if one side of the world is cutting back drastically, another side is saying, screw you, uh, we're just going to go in the other direction. So, so you know, one, one will cancel out the other, I think. Uh, plus the fact that you have natural disasters. Like you, you mentioned, George, you know, what happens to the winds? Don't blow or it blows too, too fast. You know, one eruption of a volcano far outweighs all the carbon emission controls you have in the world. Those forest fires in uh, California. You know, there's not many solar panels working in a, within a 100, 200, 300 mile radius. Then they have to go out and clean the solar panels. But anyway, that's another story. So uh, politics comes into it. Economics comes into it. Weather patterns come into it. I don't know. I'd hate to try and predict what things are going to be like in 30 years. And the only thing is, I no, I won't have to worry about it. My children will. Yeah, and that is a concern. A lot of it comes down to the, you're right, about the economics of it and the, the willingness of investors to invest in long-term planning. I think that's part of it. Oh, you and I, a number of years ago, did a whole series of training at various, what they refer to in the industry as peaker plants. They're up in the Dakotas, if you remember. And uh, that fascinated me because basically we were looking at almost all of, the, all of them were gas-fired and they were close to a gas pipeline, which was one of the reasons for it. But some of them were what you referred to as the combined cycle, which is... Um, but it does not. It's basically you're using a gas turbine that produces one lot of power off the, the off the turbine itself by driving the generator, and you use the heat from the gas turbine to actually run a steam generator and get a second lot of power out of that same amount of energy, which is an extremely efficient way of doing it. But they take a lot longer to come up to speed. So you also, you know, there's a few of those around, but the majority of them were single gas turbine or multiple gas turbine units, perhaps. But they were there because they could be brought up to speed. And why do we need these peaker plants? Because basically the core or the, the, the core generation we have, the base generation we have, isn't sufficient to meet the peak loads. And if we can't do that, and part of that is because, as you say, we are taking coal plants out, which have in the years past provided that base load and replacing it by solar and wind. But, you know, one, one day that solar field might be producing X megawatts of power and the next day it isn't. So you have to run the peaker plant instead. People just don't understand this whole basis of, you know, one of the things I try to teach in, in, in the very first of my classes is, that everything is all based on the atom and very excited electrons. That's what, you know, we are. It's what electricity is. And the one thing you can't destroy 
is that energy that you generate. Once you've got them excited, you have to use it. Otherwise, things will go wrong. Which is, you know, electricity has to be used the moment it's generated or it has to be stored, Uh, which brings us on to a whole new subject, energy storage. And I can't foresee in the near future as getting any forms of energy storage, uh, at least battery-related energy storage, that's going to uh, make up for the shortfall of those paper plants, George. We all saw what happened down in Texas uh, winter before last uh, with that ice storm. So, you know, a lot of things, in my opinion, a lot of these things haven't really been thought through significantly. I once, I once saw a statistic, uh, it's probably changed now as solar, pl- solar panels become more uh, efficient, was that uh, you'd have to build a solar farm uh, the size of the state of Texas just to power the United States from solar power. And, you know, that's not going to happen. But uh, people often forget, uh, you know, they talk about the pollution and the impact of coal, natural gas, uh, burning plants, propane in some cases. But uh, they don't look at the environmental impact of uh, some of the uh, wind turbines, solar farms, uh, and uh, also the with, uh, with regard to lithium-ion battery chemistries, uh, lithium battery chemistries, the environmental impact that has on the uh, on the world, and maybe we'll we'll talk a little bit more. But uh, you mentioned uh, electric vehicles. You love driving them, George. Uh, yes, it's, it's great. Uh, but I saw saw a tongue-in-cheek thing the other day about electric vehicles. It's, it says ninety-five percent of all electric vehicles are still on the road. The other five percent have made it home. Well, they're obviously buying the wrong batteries. <laughs> but that you know, can talk to us about that as well if you want. Uh, no, it's. Um, I would have guessed you would have a joke here someplace when I made the comment about electric cars. I, I just enjoy driving them. I have to admit. Well, and George, I think you maybe it was Alan who brought up the point too that if we want to switch to an electric fleet of vehicles, then we need to reconsider keeping coal as a as a source of of our energy. I mean, you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too here with with this. David, you're absolutely right and that's probably is the thing that is not understood by the people at both extremes. As Alan said, we've lived our life with science. When you think about it, uh when he and I joined the Royal Air Force all those years ago, we were still in our basically on our first generation of jet fighters, where we still had the old, uh, I don't remember, the old meteors, you know, I, because they, they were now being used as targets, but they were the first generation of, of jet fighter that, that, that we had. And look where we are now, you know. We've actually lived through going from flying from the UK to Singapore on a turboprop to uh, we've seen Concord come and go, and we're still going. We have lived through some of the biggest changes in science that have taken place. And, you know, I think that we need to be focusing more of that, our energy into these, solving these technical problems that we did in the past, rather than uh, having investors focus on how much profit they can make out of Google or Amazon or Facebook. What do you say to that, Alan? 
yeah, I, I firmly believe that, uh, you know, they talk about carbon free and for the, depending which statistic you read by 2035, 2050, uh, I firmly believe that there will be some other form of energy production that we, we don't even know about. You know, you and I are both, as you say, we, we grew up with uh, turboprop planes and, and transitioned to uh, jets, aircraft. But we also grew up uh, before the internet. We also grew up before mobile phones. You know, we had no idea. Talk about internet. You know, we, we had fax machines and telex machines, but nobody ever envisaged uh, what would happen with the internet. Uh, but I believe it's the same with uh, power generation. Nuclear's come a long way. Nuclear is very, very safe, uh, extremely safe. But uh, it's just getting bad press. You know, the transition over to uh, fossil fuels, which is, uh, sorry, to uh, alternative energies, which is a good thing, I believe. But, you know, that transition, and this is what the subject of this podcast, how do we achieve it? Uh, one of the things, uh, other statistic I looked at was uh, the fact that the result of, uh, uh, George, you talked about those, uh, all those gas fired plants up in the Dakotas and Wyoming and various places that we've uh, traced through snow to find. But uh, I looked at the statistic about what happens with, if it's a total ban on, on gas pipelines. Uh, and this, what this would lead to in the United States, and that was the fact that uh, they would achieve uh, 11% lower natural gas production. Uh, now I'm talking about pipelines. So a lot of those uh, plants up there are located in gas fields, so there's there's no transportation or anything. They're, you know, they're sitting on the on the on the, on the source of energy, but uh, they reduce the 11% by 11% the uh, electricity reduced from uh, natural gas. But to make that up, you'd have to increase wind by 4%. You'd have to increase nuclear by 5%. And you'd have to increase coal burning by 9%. So, you know, it's not even an offset there. That's another thing we, we need to be cognizant about. But uh, let's try and turn it a little bit more positive uh, uh, stance. David, do you, have, do you have anything you want to comment or any questions? Well, I just think that uh, it's really interesting to understand that I think we look through everything through these rose-colored glasses. And you know, like you talk about the environmental impact of pipelines, and, and obviously there's there's a lot to be considered with the treatment of, of animals who are possibly injured or, or killed with, with pipelines and things like that. But then you also look at, uh, Alan, one of the articles I sent you about uh, bald eagles getting caught in wind turbines. I mean, there's there's a... There's a cost for everything here. And, and there's also, I think, a really important point that you guys have brought up too. And there's transportation of, of things. I remember George on one podcast, you talked about how for the Christmas tree lighting at the White House, they had a uh, tree transported from California to Washington, DC. I mean, what's the, what's the carbon emission cost? for, uh, for, for transportation there or the manufacturing of solar panels? to build a solar farm instead of using an existing coal plant that's already up and running. I mean, there's, there's huge costs to all of these things. And I think it's just really important that like you're saying, you, you take a realistic approach and you look at 
There's a positive and a negative to all of these things. And uh, I think everyone needs to just be more aware that just because it's an alternative source and, and it looks like it's a, a clean source and it's not emitting smoke into the air and all of these things, it doesn't mean that it's there's not a cost associated with manufacturing, with transportation, all these other sort of residual costs on the environment that people fail to take into account. Yeah, there's all sorts of additional costs involved in various things. And one of the, it was brought home to me actually as I was driving around Kansas this week, was that I passed a generating plant that was fed from an open cast mine. So in other words, the uh, basically they were they were piling the stone the, the coal on one end of the uh, the conveyor belt, and it was going straight down into the furnaces or for treatment, as Alan says, before it goes to the furnaces to make the plant. Now uh, there is absolutely no transportation cost or anything else there. That to me is the ultimate inefficiency. And yes, so if we make that plant as clean as possible, we have a very efficient source of power. It's um, we just people have got to start thinking about the alternative ways to do it. One of one thing I did read about a couple of weeks ago that struck me was interesting was that there is a company working on the idea of actually drilling down, or they found a way they believe they can drill down into the earth sufficient to get to the really warm parts, and actually use that as the source of power for steam generators. Now, that, that starts to get very interesting because uh, even, even our energy usage, I think, will take a long time to cool down the core of the earth. You know, So uh, maybe that would be a reasonably long term, at least to protect our children. And we're not going any further than that. But, George, you, know, you also touched on something interesting, let's say you know, the environmental environmental impact of alternative energy. Uh, that's people right there peddling as carbon free, it's this, that, and the other. Uh, but just look at a couple of things. Uh, one is, uh, you know, you're building all these wind farms, and as David rightly pointed out, and that was an interesting article about uh, Next Era Energy, we find, I believe it was something in the region of $8 million by the uh, whatever authority it was for uh, killing all those bald eagles. And, and that's true. Migratory bird are, are being killed left, right, and center because there was no thought putting into, they wanted to put these turbines, mm-hmm. wind turbines, in places where the wind blew, but they didn't really calculate the fact, well, there's migratory birds, you know, fly through this area. I'd mentioned in previous conversation, I think, about it. I, I was in an uh, island off the coast of Maine, an island called Appledore Island, probably seven miles off the coast of Maine. I was there to do an audit uh, on some solar farm they had there. Uh, not the solar farm, but the batteries supporting that solar farm. And they had, uh, beside the solar farm, they had a, a wind generator, a wind turbine. and I noticed that one of the blades on the turbine was painted black, one of the three blades. And I said, what's that for? And he says, uh, we're conducting experiments here. This island is owned or operated by the University of New Hampshire. Uh, it's one of their big uh, uh, marine 
biology places, and they do a lot of bird research. So they were conducting experiments to see if this black painted blade had any, you know, significant, uh, uh, any was significant in reducing the number of bird strikes. And I believe it was proving uh, positive, but I haven't heard anything about that since. So here we have these wind turbines causing all sorts of problems. Plus, they're occupying land that could be used for other purposes, but not as much as photovoltaic cells. And, uh, you know, these vast uh, solar arrays. What's happening to the land beneath that? Here's, here you have other cases, uh, land that could be used for agriculture, land that could be used for uh, feeding livestock, but now they're covered by solar panels. So you've taken that away from the from us. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries, the, the answer to everything. It's tremendous. Uh, and it's just been exposed recently. Now, most of the lithium supplies come from poor countries, uh, significantly Africa. Uh, but there's one, uh, I believe it's the Congo or something like that, uh, where it's a major industry. And they're using five or six-year-old children in these mines. And they're getting, uh, they're getting killed, they're getting polluted. But most of these mines are owned by China. Now, China's, I wouldn't say as an enemy, but it's certainly not a, a friend economically to the United States. So we're bringing all this lithium in. Uh, well, there's not many lithium batteries made in the United States. Once again, we're importing them from, uh, from abroad. So we have this supply chain issue. But uh, there's a lot that needs to be thought about or need to be talked about when uh, we say, uh, you know, clean energy. You know, maybe clean on the, on the front end, but it's certainly not clean on the back end. I was going to say, Alan, you, you, you hit on something there as well, is because if we if look at some of the, uh, unfortunately, if we look at some of the biggest, of the uh, cleanup sites that the taxpayer is paying to uh, get cleaned up, a great many of them belong to uh, our previous battery companies and recycling. That, uh, you know, the easiest way to get out of the uh, recycling problem is uh, go bankrupt. That's happened. We're getting into lead acid batteries here versus uh, some of the newer chemistries. Uh, but the fact it's not talked about much and this is the science you know this this is the science is that a lead acid battery is between 97 and 99 percent recyclable what about some of the newer chemistries uh lithium certainly is not doesn't even approach that even when they sort out the rack finally get the uh recycling sorted out some other chemistries are uh things like zinc based and uh Sodium-based batteries are probably a lot more recyclable, but uh, you know this. This is a typical example of bad press you know, for lead-acid batteries. It's almost as if some countries, and I think I mentioned this in a one of my newsletters or one of our newsletters, is it's almost as if they were deliberately trying cut down the production of lead-acid batteries. Where to me, a lead-acid battery is probably the most environmentally friendly thing going. So I don't know if you want to comment on that, George. Or well, yeah, yeah, I, I I do agree. No, I um I think that the the, the problem we have is that uh, science has developed with the lead acid battery, and we have now got the ability to recycle lead acid batteries in a much more environmentally friendly manner. And uh, you know, as you said, there's there's practically nothing that isn't recycled when you when you do it. 
Um, I was lucky enough to visit uh, a battery plant a number of years ago where they, they did. They brought them in, and there was, I think it was about 3% of what they brought in actually went and ended up in a landfill after they had done all the necessary conversions of the bits and pieces. And it was 100% clean. There was no problems. It's just that people are looking at the way that things were done in the past and using that as the way they'll be done in the future. And that's not true. You know, there have been advances in the way we can we can do things and minimize the pollution that's caused by it. We have to do it in, via, in the correct environmental way. And I, I think that's kind of a similar argument to what we're talking about with coal. And I think there are ways to improve on that older technology that still gets a bad rap, kind of like lead-acid batteries. And I think there's this this need to feel like we need to innovate and, and find something b- bigger and better, but at the cost of what? It seems like we're solving one problem and creating another in a lot of these instances. So great topic today, guys. I'd like to give you an opportunity to close it up here. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's we, we need to talk about one thing you were talking about a lot, George, is efficiency. I mean, what is the efficient model that we need to look at as we move forward that might make a little bit more sense than some of the the greenwashing and all the other uh, political agendas that we seem to be satisfying. So, Alan, any uh, final thoughts? No, no um, I think uh, we've we've stated it all, uh, uh, be it in a very uh, condensed fashion. But uh, one of the things I was thinking about the the other day is I was watching my neighbor split wood. I live in the country. Uh, I'm on my own septic system and I have a well, but uh, all of my neighbors burn wood, you know, for heating. All my neighbors and myself, we have gasoline powered tractors or lawn tractors or appliances. How long is it before people are going to the environmentalist lobby is going to say, well, you can't burn wood anymore? They've already started with. Uh, you know, gasoline-powered uh, tools and not so much tools, but lawn tractors. Uh, so, you know, my fear is that, uh, you know, what's happening at the high level, closing down power plants and things like that, is going to enter the lower level. You know, it's uh, stopping me from uh, burning wood, trickle down. So I think there's a lot more to it uh, uh, than just meets the eye. But there again, I'm a, I'm a curmudgeon, and uh, I, I wouldn't say I, I was uh, opinionated, uh, but uh, plenty of other people would. Including your co-host here. You're not mildly opinionated, you're very opinionated, but that's uh, so am I, so it's uh, probably why we got on. No, I, I think, David, you're, you're right. I, the way I look at it is, is, that we should be trying to use the most efficient method to use the resources we have available to us. And perhaps, you know, we we actually go back many years and say that instead of putting investment into solar panels, we should have been investing into cleaning up our existing power sources. And that if that is what's required, then the, uh, if the local, Utility or utility once that has to do it, then there should be help with for them to put that level of protection in. 
because uh, that's not the cost of generating power. That's the cost of getting the thing cleaner. So rather than subsidizing solar, maybe we should have been subsidizing the cleaning up of our existing uh, generating plants. Just one final comment. Uh, less than five miles from where I live was one of the largest uh, solar panel production facilities in North America. Uh, it was originally BP Solar, and then it became SolarX. Uh, they closed that down. Uh, after, after expanding the plant, it suddenly closed it down because it wasn't economically viable. So where do we get the solar panels from now? We get them from the Far East, most of them. I don't know if one, maybe there is, maybe GE's done something, but they're not being manufactured in North America. Neither are the wind turbine blades. So here we are dependent upon imports again. Might not be imports of uh, you know, stuff to uh, generate uh, uh, fossil fuel or fossil electricity, but we're relying on imports again to depend upon alternative energy. So. We've got to look at that and change our politicians maybe somewhere or other, on both sides, of course. Agreed. Yeah, great points, guys. Thanks again for your time. And I know we'll dive into other innovations and alternative sources as we continue to go through our podcasts here. But uh, I, I think it's really important to look at primarily this fossil fuel argument and where we're headed and what's, what's the reality. So thanks a lot for setting it straight like you guys always do. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.